Hi, I'm Leah Potter. And I'm Meredith Roten, and we're two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It, covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. I'm here with our student life editor, Sarah Roach, who's here to tell us about the store's new student handbook. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Leah. What is this handbook? What does it include for students? So the handbook called the Hippo Handbook, it was started by uh, members of the store, um, the university's food pantry, and it's basically just a nearly like 90-page document where any student can interact with it. They can um, add comments, they can add critiques, and basically just give advice about different um, aspects of student life, like housing, um, dining, clothing, even nightlife. Their logic behind this handbook is that um, some of these costs are, are really expensive, and by giving this like one document where students have uh, resources about like how to like build a resume or how to find a work study um, that it will sort of streamline some frustrations that students may have with like navigating university websites. And is this based off of what other universities are doing? Yeah, the handbook was based off of University of Michigan and University of Texas's the Being Not Rich Guide, and actually originally it was going to be called that, but when they sent out the first draft to um, shoppers of the store, they weren't exactly thrilled with that name, so they changed it to the Hippo Handbook, and they also just thought that was a little bit more fitting for GW students. Will this sort of act as like a call to action or kind of a means for advocacy in terms of affordability on campus? Uh, Not necessarily. Students who were involved in creating this basically said that this is just a handbook for students. They don't want they don't want officials to look at it and and see it as something that they should be addressing. Um, They just want it as something that students on campus can look at and they can find beneficial, um, like I said earlier, rather than like navigating university websites. And basically what they want to do with this is close off the handbook at a certain period of time and call it like their first edition of the handbook, but essentially leave um, the document up online so students can still interact with it even though they're closing off their first edition. And then over the course of a few years, they're hoping to document like how affordability on campus has changed over time and whether some of those resources that were once there um, have been revamped or the university has included more resources. So this is basically just a documented way for students to A, know where to find certain things that may be difficult to find, whether it be um, how to apply to for affinity housing or how to build a resume, and then track that over a period of time. With this document being open for all students to edit, how is the store verifying that this information is accurate? Members of the store are basically taking some of that information if they see it pop up like every few days and they're passing it over to officials so that they can look through that information and make sure that it's correct. And if some students even want to add um, another component to the handbook, like if they want to add a new section, then some students have have, you know, t- uh, spoken with officials and made sure that all the information that they're writing is correct. Thanks for coming on, Sarah, and updating us about what the store is doing. Yeah, thanks for having me. Kelly Hooper, one of the Hatchet staff writers, is here to give us an update on a story that we've been covering for a long time about grad students trying to unionize. What is the latest? So about a year ago, graduate student workers initiated a push to unionize, to form a labor union. As they were trying to unionize, they saw a lot of resistance from the university. 
And so after so much pushback from administrators and officials, graduate students said that going into this semester, they're going to be focusing not on getting the university to formally recognize them as a union, but more so pushing the university to make changes to things like healthcare and other issues that affect graduate student workers. Do they have one priority for this fall, or is it kind of a couple of different issues that they're advocating for? They said over time they're going to be focusing on different issues, but for right now their main focus is on improving graduate student healthcare options and making healthcare more affordable for graduate students because it's such a big financial burden for a lot of graduate students that are also paying tuition and paying high rent prices and transportation costs living in DC. What are the rates like right now for grad students? All on-campus nursing and health science students, medical students, and international students are required to have health insurance, so they will be automatically enrolled in GW SHIP unless they have another health insurance plan. And also, all other graduate students are able to enroll in GW SHIP, and they have to pay the about $4,100 for the academic year if they choose to. They're sort of trying to, like, make that more affordable and also make it cover more areas because it doesn't cover things like dental as of right now. Okay. Why have they decided to put aside unionization for the moment? So because last academic year the university was so resistant to letting them unionize and formally recognizing them as a union, they've sort of realized that that's probably not going to change going into this academic year. So they're really going to be focusing more so on getting more student graduate student support on campus, um, building up their base, and pushing the university to make changes to things that are really pressing on graduate student workers as of right now. And are they going to do that using the same tactics that they've been using previously with letters and sit-ins? As of right now, they didn't give any details on what exactly they're going to be doing for the semester as far as sit-ins and grade-ins, but really a main thing that they're working on right now is going around to different departments, trying to talk to more graduate student workers about their efforts and about those students' needs on campus. So sort of going out to coffee with people and getting to know people and talking about what issues they're facing as of right now. Are grad students hopeful that their efforts will kind of pay off this semester in a way that they haven't in the past? Yeah, so I talked to Jackie Bolduan, who is a doctoral student, and she's a leader of the unionization efforts, and she said that after the group petitioned officials last year for free health care for graduate workers, the university started allowing some graduate workers to pay for the health insurance plan in installments rather than all up front. We know that that improvement is in direct response to our demands last semester for mm-hmm. free health care. Um, we want to continue to ride the wave of that win. And, you know, that is proof that the union works um, and that there is power in numbers. Thanks, Kelly, for giving us the latest on the story. Thanks for having me. I'm here with our sports editor, Barbara Alberts, who's here to tell us about several teams who are going into their conference play. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Leah, for having me. It's been way too long. Tell me about what's happening with the volleyball team. 
Heading into conference play, volleyball was on a four-game win streak. It's really interesting to note that last year, last season, the team didn't win more than three games in a row. They continued that win streak when they beat St. Louis in three straight sets to open up conference play, and then they dropped their second match of the weekend to Dayton on Saturday. Also, their head coach, Sarah Burnson's now in her second year, and she mentioned that last year the struggles came because the team was getting used to a new system and they were getting used to how she was as a coach, but now it's all kind of gelled a little bit more. They've definitely found their identity. And then, you know, overall, the team's improved in a lot of aspects of their play. To give an example, they were having issues with unforced errors and You know, we've seen that number kind of coming down this season, and a lot of it is because, you know, players are saying that they're owning their mistakes now, that they're taking ownership of their role and their responsibilities, and it's becoming a much more cohesive group. So it's going to be really interesting to see how they compare to other A-10 competitors that they were very close with last year. Can you also update us on women's soccer? Yeah, absolutely. They opened their A-10 season last Thursday against Rhode Island at home with a 4-0 win. You know, they were kind of having a little bit of an offensive struggle heading into conference play. They hadn't scored in four games. And, you know, when a team can't score, I mean, your defense can only do so much. Their goalkeeper has been outstanding between the net. They did have a very strong start to their conference play, which, um, you know, hopefully will set the tone for the rest of the season. Rhode Island really wasn't the toughest competition that they'll face, but I think having that first conference win under head coach Michelle Demko, it's a very good way to start the season. And what about men's water polo? How is that team doing? Yeah, men's water polo is also opening up their conference play. They play in the Mid-Atlantic Water Polo Conference. They opened up their conference slate on the road against LaSalle and Wagner and Fordham University over the weekend. And before conference play, they had already played against, you know, LaSalle and Wagner. So they do have that familiarity when it comes to facing off against opponents. But, you know, their head coach, Barry King, who's also now in his second year, mentioned that just because they've played a team already this season doesn't mean that they're the same team in the sense that, everybody's getting better. All of the teams have improved since last time they've played. All of the teams have been, you know, really honing in on who they're going to be competing against in conference play. What are the strengths? What are the weaknesses? Things like that. So, you know, for him, it's his second year in the program. And he's, while he does have that extra kind of experience under his belt against MAWPC opponents, he said there's still this kind of air of, you know, surprise. You never know which new person's going to come in and, you know, play really well for a team and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, the, the men's water polo team is also the defending champions of this league. Now, they've seen all these opponents before, but, you know, from what it sounds like, they're pretty confident in how they're doing already. Well, thanks so much for coming on this week, Barbara, and updating us about these teams. Yeah, thanks for having me, Leah. Margo, this week you have a story about some locals who started their own business on the water. So two friends, Jack Marr and Jack Walton, are the founders of Potomac Paddle Pub, and they have been friends since preschool, and they bonded over the fact that they were both named Jack. And so the friendship continued on through college. They both went to rival schools in South Carolina, and when they graduated, they moved in back together and started devising business ideas. But why a paddle boat pub? Like, what is the appeal to locals in D.C.? Sure. Well, actually, this isn't the first of its kind. There are other paddleboat pubs in Chicago, Detroit, and Charleston. And the two of them found a manufacturer in Oregon, 
Cascade Cycle Boats, who kind of did this sort of thing, and they realized it would be a great kind of way to uniquely tour the DC waterfront, and, and so you get all of that on the water in this kind of intimate exercising setting with beer in your hand. So for the tour part of the, the paddle boats, is that like a historical tour? Or is it just kind of, look, there's this monument, there's this monument? Yeah, so it drops, you get picked up at the Georgetown waterfront. And so you kind of get a look at the Kennedy Center and Watergate and all those places. You kind of traverse through the Jefferson Memorial and the Tidal Basin, and you end up all the way at the Pentagon. It's an hour and a half of just drinking and paddling. There are extra seats for those who get tuckered out, you know, midway. So you can always have those two or three people hustling the paddle while you're chilling. So you have to pay for the boat, but are the drinks also expensive? Well, it's actually BYOB. And I think the point of that was a lot of these booze cruises, Mar said, like they pay for the, you know, the ticket. But then when you get your third drink, like you realize you've paid double the ticket price. Mm -hmm. They just wanted attendees to kind of bring their own so that the only price you pay is the $45 ticket to um, get in. And also you can't like down cocktails. They don't serve liquor on the boat. Here is Mar talking about the response that he's received so far. And now it's pretty cool when, when people just approach us and we've, we've gotten a good number of bookings. So it's been, a, it's been a cool experience, especially growing up in Arlington. A lot of people that, you know, we haven't talked up to in years, really, of all different ages groups, whether it's people younger than us, our age, older, people that were like our teachers when we were young, kind of reaching out and, and showing some love. It's been pretty cool. And it's also pretty sustainable. So there are solar panels that power the electrical systems. And on top of that, there's an option to donate some of the proceeds to Potomac Conservancy. And here's Walton now talking about the importance of keeping the Potomac safe. And that was something that was kind of a big selling point for Jack and I, just being from Arlington and um, growing up in the area. We've you know, been going down to Potomac for uh, you know most of our lives. So uh, kind of sustaining the Potomac and helping uh, you know, cleaning, it, cleaning it up would be uh, something that was pretty important to us. Thanks for sharing your story, Margo. Sure, Meredith, and maybe we can get a group of people to paddle away one day. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Meredith Roten and Leah Potter and features culture editor Margo Dines. This podcast is produced by managing editor Matt Colin and video editor Ariana Dunham. Music is produced by Olk Studio. Special thanks to Barbara Alberts, Kelly Hooper, and Sarah Roach for joining us. See you next week.